Welcome to episode nine of Booty and Bossy Eat, Drink, Knit. We are very excited on this episode to have another celebrity guest, Michelle Obama's book. Yes, well, we couldn't actually get Michelle Obama, but we have invited her book to come and speak with us. Well, she's going to be speaking with us through her book. This is her new book, The Light We Carry. So we're going to be talking about that. We both read it and thoroughly enjoyed it and have some things to say. But before we start that, Booty, do you want to share our recipe for the episode, the chicken marbella? We thought we would go again, continuing with our savory theme. Mm. So fill us in on what's great about chicken marbella. Bossy was thinking that this is something that Michelle Obama would probably approve of because it's somewhat healthy. <laughs> it's yeah. healthy-ish. And it's just a really nice homey meal. It's comfort food, basically. It does meet our requirements that you can put everything in one pan. I love that you can make it the night before. You're just throwing everything into a bowl and marinating your chicken. So you're you're marinating it with olive oil and red wine vinegar. I think in this case, it has to be red wine vinegar, not some balsamic or... I've never tried it, at least. I've never tried. I always use red wine vinegar, yeah. And then olives and capers and prunes, garlic, some oregano, salt and pepper. The flavors of the sweet prunes with the tart olives and capers and then... Saltiness of the capers, yeah. Yeah, this and then with the chicken. And it's also one of those that gets better the next day. The leftovers are really good. And Mm. you put all that in the refrigerator overnight and then you're just putting it in a pan. You sprinkle a little brown sugar on top and then a cup of white wine, and then you bake it. There are two recipes that we're going to talk about. The first is silver palate recipe, which they call for a whole chicken in pieces. But who does that? I know. I actually like to do mine just with chicken breasts. It just is easier to eat. You don't have to do the bone thing. (laughs) And then there's also the Ina Garden recipe. And Ina references the silver palette is that's where it originally came from in the 80s if you've never heard of it the silver palette cookbook is this excellent cookbook from the 80s it does have a lot of butter and sugar pretty much and i remember too that it was definitely sort of thing in the 80s that everybody made stuff there's two silver palette cookbooks and mine is literally i'm going to take a picture of it of mine because mine is literally falling apart even to the point where i use duct tape to tape it back together and the duct tape has failed which i I didn't think I, i thought like duct tape could survive a nuclear holocaust well apparently it cannot survive sorry there's more than two there's there's two main ones. There's there's, oh. there's the silver palette and this and the good times. But I think in response to people complaining about all the fat and sugar, there's a healthy one. Oh. <laughs> I never used the healthy one. <laughs> I didn't even know that it existed. So I guess that says a lot about the plane on which I exist. I know that a lot of people felt like it was one of those 
cookbooks that everything had a lot of ingredients. I remember making something where they said that you had to make like your own tomato sauce. And so I went out and bought fresh tomatoes and roasted them and everything. And it was a lot of trouble. The chicken marbella recipe, it does have, you know, doesn't exactly pass the you already have it in your pantry test. I don't usually have prunes in my pantry. Well, I feel like if I'm going to go out and buy the chicken, then it's not such a big deal to also get the prunes. The olives, there's a good chance that I'll have that. Yeah. And the, the capers, the olives and the capers, you'll it's enough. You can probably get at least two recipes out of it, if not three. Yeah. So. No, I agree. I think it's the kind of thing where once you start making it, then you just make a point of having olives and prunes, which keep very well. I have to say, so it's got maybe some ingredients that you wouldn't normally have, but they're good to, to add to your, to your larder. <laughs> and you also, on the wine, you know, since it's got the wine in it, then you got some wine to serve with right. your chicken. Because so. it does take one cup of dry white wine. And one of the things that you have to do, and they're very explicit about this, is that I usually marinate it like in a bag because then I can just throw, I guess that's environmentally not very good though. But anyway, I do put it in the bag and then you put it in the pan and then you sprinkle the brown sugar on top and then you pour the wine on, but you want to make sure that you're not pouring the wine on top of the chicken. So right. you're just pouring it around because you want all of that good stuff to, you don't want to wash it all off the chicken. You want it to kind of cook on top of the chicken. But it's actually one of the simpler recipes from the silver palette because some of the silver palette recipes are fairly involved. Right. We looked it up and the differences between the Ina recipe and the silver palette is that China uses more prunes. She uses one and a half cups instead of one. I completely agree with that. I don't know. I'm on the Oh, phone. everybody in my family immediately kind of eats the prunes. Not so much in my family. I don't know how, where I went wrong. So if I'm the only one eating the prunes. <laughs> so you can use other fruits. I mean, you could use dried cherries or I think it would be good with apricots, bossy. I don't know. I, I think apricots have a tang to them that I think the, the thing that works well is sort of the counterpoint between the, the sweetness of the prunes with the sourness of the olives and then the saltiness of the capers. I remember when I first read the recipe in the Silver Palette, I thought that just sounds weird. It's not. The other one that would be really good, although I'd probably still be the only ones eating it, would be figs. Figs, yes. Yeah. I could see figs. Yes. That might dress it up a little bit. But okay. And Ina says one cup of olives instead of a half a cup. I agree with that, even though I'm the only one eating the olives. <laughs> <laughs> she says one and a half heads of garlic instead of one. My family's not big on garlic. <laughs> Actually, my um, kids are, but... Uh, I do have to say, I agree with all of Ina's updates, that more olives, more prunes, more garlic. The garlic kind of mellows out a lot, I think, because it, it's marinating, and also uh, you've got the red wine vinegar and stuff, so it's not 
super garlicky, even though it sounds like it's a lot of garlic. Right. And then the big one that I like that Ina uh, has changed is half a cup of light brown sugar instead of one cup. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. And the process is the same for both. Just marinate it overnight, then bake it for an hour at 350. And we like to serve it with rice. Yes. It, the the sauce is really good with the rice. The combination of the, the wine and the olive oil and vinegar just really makes it a delicious, rich yeah. sauce. And I do have to say that if you are looking for a recipe that you want somebody else to put it in the oven so mm. that it will be ready when you get home. This is a good recipe for that. You can do all of the legwork and then just say, put it in a pan. You might want to leave the recipe out because I could see where certain things like the bit about pouring the wine mm. or sprinkling the brown sugar it does seem weird that you're putting brown sugar on chicken um, right 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 two things no. so i could see certain people interpreting that as a mistake and leaving it out but you should not leave it out it's, it's a great one for dinner parties that and i think ina mentions that in the 80s everyone was making this for dinner parties. Yeah. but it's i think it's still good it's also a great one if you have somebody who has a new baby and you're bringing supper for them I mean, it, because it has that wonderful comfort food element and the leftover element as well. You can yeah. you can eat the chicken cold. Don't even have to heat it up. I usually it's in both recipes. It says two four pound chickens that you cut into eight pieces and backs removed. I usually just get one of those big things of I like the chicken thighs the 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 ones that have the bones in them and you definitely want to have you don't want to go with like boneless skinless you want the skin to be on because that gets nice and crispy so when you're putting it in taking it out of the marinade and putting it in the pan you want to put the skin side up on all of the things but i know you like to use boneless yeah right? I, I use boneless skinless and i don't know why but i just don't really like eating the chicken skin and i know it's supposed to be really good for you and that a lot of people love it but it's just like this the simplicity of the chicken breast and also the part of that is also because that's what my family will eat more easily it's true the bones the bones are a little bit of a pain yeah so make that enjoy and we will start talking about michelle obama's book yes tell us the story of because this was something that you had started reading and then recommended it to well, me. I read um, her first book, Becoming, and really enjoyed that. I think she just has a wonderful way of writing that makes you feel like you know her. <laughs> well, she, mm -hmm. she really, in Becoming, she really opened up and talked about her whole journey to becoming First Lady. Yay. The details of that, her relationship with Brock. So... There's a certain openness that I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, and she talks about in this book, too, that there's actually 
power in sharing your vulnerability. And so I think she's very good about being honest. I tend to think of her as this wonder woman who's beautiful and confident and and smart and never has any doubts about her own power. And she is all those things. But I love how she shares all those moments of doubt and where she wonders, can I do this? And what kind of parent am I? And what have I done? Kind of thing. <laughs> she talked about in this book, The the Light We Carry, how she was going up to make a speech at, at the Democratic National Convention. And her yep. brother was the one who was introducing her. And when they hug on stage and he lets her know that the prompter is out. <laughs> And so she's now going up and, you know, she had memorized the speech. She realized like, okay, this other prompter is working. She she got up there. And she also realized there was something in the back that was hidden by all the, the signs that people were. The Michelle signs. The Michelle signs. <laughs> they were printed vertically, you know, and so she goes up there and was able to get through it because she had memorized it. She was well prepared. Right. But, but that feeling of the technology failing, I mean, how many times has that yeah. happened? Can we just talk about how many times we have recorded and re-recorded? <laughs> Our first episode we recorded three times? I think it was three times, yeah. <laughs> and every time we did it, it went in a completely different direction. And we were like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get to that. I mean, we we always have sort of the outline, but then there's this sort of the the byways that we go. But um, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's just that that honesty and and the humor that she had. But I have to say, a whole chapter, and it's the first chapter on becoming a knitter and the process. What she found, what helped her in getting through the pandemic. Yes. With the rhythm of knitting. And we always have a quote for our podcast. And I think this one here on page 34, it says, in all my decades of staying busy, I had always presumed that my head was fully in charge of everything, including telling my hands what to do. It hadn't really ever occurred to me to let things flow the opposite way. But that's what knitting did. It reversed the flow. It buckled my churning brain into the back seat and allowed my hands to drive the car for a while. It detoured me away from my anxiety, just enough to provide some relief. Anytime I picked up those needles, I'd feel the rearrangement, my fingers doing the work, my mind trailing behind. And that really spoke to me. <laughs> yeah. The rhythm. And, and I actually, I thinking back, there was this pattern when I was a pretty new knitter. I had gone to Church Mouse, which is in Bainbridge Island, local to me. It's still online. Unfortunately, the, the shop is closed. And I picked up a pattern that's some kind of a prayer shawl. And I think this is fairly typical of most prayer shawls, where it's a pattern of three repeats. I think that's kind of the... Most. Oh, like the Holy Trinity? Exactly. Okay. And so the idea is that you knit three, purl three, knit three, and you're not actually making ribbing. It's in a way that almost looks like garter, but not quite. And it was thick mm -hmm. yarn on fairly big needles. And that's how, and 
I started making the ponchos. I made that blanket and I was I was making it while I was watching my son who was in elementary school play soccer, which was very <laughs> entertaining. <laughs> they were they were not the most skilled, but they were had the most fun, I think. <laughs> Didn't he often start picking flowers in the middle of the games and stuff? Or maybe that was my son. Um, yeah, I was amazed at how much they could do on a field that had nothing to do with soccer. I still remember a little girl laying down in the middle of the soccer field. And somehow she decided that maybe she could make snow angels in the grass. <laughs> so she was, and then other kids saw her and they were like, hey, that looks like fun. <laughs> half the team was lying down. <laughs> there was one time where the coach, the coach was so, he was so patient and so kind where he, he kicked the ball to one of the other players and he said something about sorry that wasn't the best kick or that didn't go well and my son said it's okay you tried your best <laughs> I think they should have gotten medals for being like the nicest and most entertaining yeah <laughs> if yeah. not that the, re the record the winning loss record was not great but yeah so anyway that part spoke to me about just the rhythm of the knitting that calms you down and I think that that sometimes you need projects like that that are just you don't have to think about them a lot you're not hmm let's just as a counterpoint talk about brioche <laughs> this would be the opposite <laughs> of that mm -hmm. yes yeah Right. And that's what you need sometimes, too. You need something that's going to be so diverting that right. you... it's going to totally absorb all your attention so that you don't have to think about other things. Exactly. So what's what spoke to you? I liked from that same chapter. I mean, I'm always interested in how people find ways of dealing with anxiety. I think for her, it was really the pandemic and this, she'd had this life of going full speed. And she talks about how she wore her busyness like a badge of honor and then the busyness stopped. I liked how she says, this is on page 36, I had to go small in order to think big again. Shaken by the enormity of everything that was happening, I needed my hands to reintroduce me to what was good, simple, and accomplishable. She talks later about how I've come to understand that sometimes the big stuff becomes easier to handle when you deliberately put something small alongside of it. I think that's such a powerful metaphor. I mean, I guess she talks about doing something small, but later on, she also talks about that idea of when you want to do something big, breaking it down into small parts helps you not be overwhelmed. And I think that's where knitting is such an incredible metaphor because you literally have to knit a sweater. Say, what's the sweater you're knitting right now? Again, the pretzel. The pretzel. I was going to say Brexit, but I knew that was wrong. Um, <laughs> cut in the middle. It's just like Brexit. Severing <laughs> that's the steaking. Hopefully it goes better than the real Brexit. But it's that idea that you literally have to knit a sweater a stitch at a time. You can't 
say there aren't really any shortcuts. And I think that there's comfort in that. And you're focusing literally on a stitch at a time. Also, if you make a mistake, it's it's painful, but you can take it out and you can redo it. I mean, and the only thing that you'll lose is the time of that. I think that that's a really powerful metaphor for just kind of how how do we get through big stuff and small stuff. And I really liked how she talked about that. She ends the chapter with, so now let's cast on. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I think is 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 great. In that chapter, I think it was later on where she talked about the studies that show when you're facing a task that your perception of whether or not you could complete it is based on if someone, so if you're standing at the bottom of a big mountain to climb and whether you're standing there by yourself or you're standing there with somebody else, that your perception of how, how likely it is you'll be able to climb the mountain changes for the better if you're with someone else. I love that. That was a study done at the University of Virginia that they kind of set out to explore a theory about friendship. This is on page 148. And they strapped heavy backpacks to a group of volunteers and one by one positioned each person in front of a big hill as if they were going to climb it. Each volunteer was asked to estimate how steep it was. Half of them stood alone in front of the hill. The other half stood next to someone they'd identified as a friend. And consistently, those who were with the friend viewed the hill as less steep and the climb ahead less difficult, which I think that's the other thing that I really enjoyed about the book. I mean, of course, I loved the metaphor of of knitting and how that helped her to get through the pandemic. I think all of us looked for ways to deal with the fact that our life has had changed. And I love that she found knitting. But the other thing she talks about is friendship. That study, how people's perception literally of how steep a hill is depends on if you have a friend standing next to you. I think is so powerful. And especially as we came out of the pandemic, because I think people went one way or the other, they either became more isolated or they became closer to people. It was a real test. (laughs) Yeah. That I'm sorry to say, though, that I don't think that I would be Michelle Obama's friend because, (laughs) well, because of the friendship, the three day spa weekends. (laughs) Yeah. Tell about Michelle Obama's idea of fun with her friends at Camp David. Like nonstop workouts, no wine or no alcohol, no sugar. No desserts. No desserts. No no red meat. (laughs) Her friends rebelled and eventually they got some wine reinstated. And I think they got some desserts. And some desserts. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wondered if she told them, but I I did feel like, okay, maybe she does have two f- true friends who were like, Michelle, this is ridiculous. You right. know, <laughs> right. We're not doing this. Well, and I could see where you feel like, oh, Michelle's inviting me to this weekend. Of course, this sounds, you know, of course I'm going to go. And <laughs> what? No dessert? No wine? Like, I mean, I would assume if I was going to Camp David or the White House, 
the first thing would be, we're probably going to have good food, good wine. I don't know that I would have necessarily even brought a lot of exercise clothes. Right. I think of Camp David, I don't think of it as a gym. Maybe some long walks. Long walks. Yeah. Yeah, I I would bring sneakers. Right. But definitely not the idea of the workout. No. The workouts. And and they weren't easy workouts either. I mean, it sounded like, you know, you all had to sweat. Right. And then maybe you'd get a bottle of water. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's no. That's a no-go. But (laughs) But I do respect that she's kind of a tough taskmaster. I like that. Well, and I could see where the the idea that you're going to push your body to do things that you didn't think were possible. Well, you're more athletic than I am, but that there's some value in that. I could see that. I mean, you can eat healthy and still have some dessert. (laughs) Moderation. I know because I always think, oh, if I work out, I think that I've earned a chocolate chip cookie or something like that's the whole thing. I realize that's probably not the best way to better to work out and eat the chocolate chip cookie than not work out yeah right and eat the chocolate chip cookie yeah but so I was a little disappointed that I didn't think I would make it into the inner circle I had visions of her and her friends going out for a run and then they'd be like where's Jenny and (laughs) I'd be like eight miles behind with the with the fat secret service people who couldn't keep up I do have to say there was a certain trip without revealing too much where mm. a certain person that we visited had no sugar, no caffeine, no alcohol. <laughs> Luckily, I was coming from Seattle and I had brought some chucka cherries. And that was the only thing that kept me and my mother sane. <laughs> Sitting down and eating chucka cherries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> desperate but, times. Yeah. Yes. And it's also kind of a good thing to realize how dependent you are on those things that the idea of going without them for a weekend or whatever is so daunting. There was a yeah. really good Portlandia where they go off of pasta. and they they just barely you know make it through and they they're kind of like okay i think we can do it and one of them suggests well next thing i think we should do no sugar and the other one's like ah yeah Yeah, wasn't there a seinfeld episode too where they all decided not to masturbate and they they didn't make it past six hours or something like that exactly What are other parts of the book that you enjoyed? Well, the parts where she talks about her daughters, visiting the daughters and discovering. So her daughters are living together in California and they're actually um, renting an apartment together. So Barack and Michelle go to visit them and they make them cocktails. Everything is, they bought it, they've researched it. They had a budget for their furnishings in their apartment. They have coasters and <laughs> she puts the the drink on the coaster. And that real Michelle has this realization that her children have common sense. Yes. <laughs> I loved that. 
because I could so connect to you have all these hopes for your children, but then they do something and you're just like, oh my God, they're never going to survive in the world. They have no common sense. And I love the way that she put that. It's on page 153 where she says the whole making of the martinis and putting them on these newly purchased coasters says, I watched all of this with some astonishment. It's not that I'm surprised that our kids have grown up exactly, but somehow the whole scene, the coasters in particular, signal the different sort of landmark, the type of thing every parent spends years scanning for, which is evidence of common sense. you do you just have all these moments with your ungrateful children where you're like they will never survive in the wilderness (laughs) they don't know how to use a knife i noticed that the other day it reminds me of one of my all-time favorite stories is i have a friend who when i first met her she explained she said do you remember the boat people from cambonia in the early 70s and i was like yeah and she was like well we we were the boat people and she and her husband came over in the early 70s to the us she's she's chinese and he was from thailand and they were in those camps in cambodia before they came over and i remember her son and my son were close friends and we went pumpkin picking and at the beginning of it, they had picked these big pumpkins out in the field. And we'd said to them, well, okay, you pick what you want, but you're going to have to carry it. And so they start off and they're carrying it. And pretty soon they're setting it down. And then pretty soon they're they're rolling them. And then they're, they're kicking them when we're not. <laughs> so my friend catches sight of this and she goes, you know, she yells at her son. She says, you wouldn't last a day in Cambodia. and i remember thinking i don't even have that you know (laughs) but no there is there's just a way that obviously we want our children to be happy and lead meaningful fulfilling lives but there is this basic little kernel of fear all the time that they just have no common sense in how they go about everyday tasks like eating and (laughs) right can they feed themselves well i i loved her advice that she gives for parenting she says number one teach your kids to wake themselves up and i have to say that i found some similarities between the way we were raised and the way michelle and and her parents their philosophies because my mother's favorite phrase is bend for yourselves (laughs) (laughs) and and there is there's wisdom there that that basically gives you the opportunity to rely on yourself you are the one that has to wake yourself up like i am not a morning person my kids know that they're going to have to get out of the house on their own. They know that if they don't wake up, it's not like I'm going to set an alarm and wake them up. So they do get out on their own and and they know that they're the ones that are going to have to make their lunches. They have been making their lunches since probably kindergarten, something like that. And so I, you know, I provide the food there are things that they can assemble. It's not that I'm leaving them to their own devices. 
I love that chapter because I, I think her mother is just a remarkable person. And she has a chapter where she says, kind of meet my mom. And then what are the parenting guidelines? Because she did have her mom come and live with them for eight years when they were in the White House. One of them was give your kid an alarm clock. And she talks about how, you know, if she didn't set the alarm right, or she didn't wake up, her mother wouldn't wake her up. She would basically say, well, you know, I've already been to school. So I'm done with that. School is is your deal. You got to be ready for it and stuff like that. I think that's so true because I've met plenty of students who don't have an alarm clock, come to college, can't wake up for class. And they, if I ask them, well, how'd you get up for school in high school? They would probably say, well, my my mom and my dad made sure that I was up and out of the house and that that's not helping them when mom and dad aren't there. Totally. Exactly. Well, and yeah. the other one she talks about is parenting the child you've got. As a teacher, there was this book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And they have a, another book about sibling rivalry, siblings without rivalry. And that was eye-opening to me because it was don't feel like I'm buying socks so I have to get everybody socks and I have to get them the same socks or at least no it should be about who needs socks (laughs) and who doesn't that you're meeting the kids where they are and it doesn't have to be the same for everybody Right. It was really like, oh. No, and I love that story that she told. I think her daughters were four and seven, and she was in Chicago, and she was working. And, you know, Barack at that point was a senator and was away in Washington. And, you know, she came home after a long day of work, you know, made the kids dinner and said, all right, go up, brush your teeth and get to bed. There was sort of silence, and then she heard squeals. And, you know, little footsteps up there. And they were clearly not doing the things that she had told them to do. So in exasperation. And I do so appreciate that she shared this because I think we've all had not shining moments in parenting. I actually thought this was kind of brilliant, though, which was she went up and she said, well, you clearly don't need a mother. You're not listening to anything that I say. So mother yourself. You just decide. Her one daughter immediately got very tearful and said, you know, well, mommy, I don't want that to happen. And immediately went and brushed her teeth, put herself to bed. And her younger daughter was immediately like, woohoo, finally (laughs) (laughs) went upstairs, turned on the TV, you know, and and everything. And that that sort of made her realize that what was going to work with one was not going to work with the other. And I do remember a time where I couldn't get my son to go into the car. He didn't want to go. And so I was just like, I've got to go to work. So you just stay home and you can make your own lunch and get whatever you need out of the, I think he was like three. I mean, he was really... (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, Bossy did not actually carry through with this. Well, I did get in the car and I drove out to the end of the driveway so that he couldn't see me. And I waited for like two minutes and then I came back in and 
I was really feeling like, oh my God, he's going to be crying and he's going to be beside himself. And I walked in, he was not crying. And he said, oh good, you're back because I'm having problems unzipping my coat. <laughs> like he expected me to come in, unzip his coat and then leave again. Right. And I right. Said, you were just going to magically appear whenever he needed you. And then. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I forgot something. And then he was like, oh. And I said, yeah, you. I forgot you. You're coming. <laughs> and we're not going to do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it totally. It's just so funny because you, I could so relate to having those moments where you're just like a tired. I mean, it usually yeah. starts with being tired. Right. And being exasperated. And then your children just push you over the edge but i love that she told that story i love the story but i right. think i love it more that she told it and i think there's so much truth in how different children just react differently and you don't know well we had that when one time my daughter was crying she was probably about probably one and a half something like that and I was like you said exasperated and just and I was there with my son and I I turned to him and I said you know maybe we should just leave her <laughs> we were like we were like in the entranceway of our building and he said no we can't leave her <laughs> and I thought oh he's not like me <laughs> I was like really can we really leave her that'd be great <laughs> I remember going into a store and I was trying to do the stupid thing of well I, we're just gonna run in and get this thing and get out well you know that that never works with a three-year-old and I'll never forget you know I was taking my son out of his car seat and he looked at me and he said mommy why is your forehead frowning <laughs> 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 all these lines across my forehead and I was like you you have given me every one of those yeah they do have a way of letting us know when we're doing it wrong or to, to yeah. just to be taking a step back and saying okay right this yeah. is not the way we want to go for it. I do I also like I forget who wrote this I want to say girlfriend's guide to pregnancy, I think, where she said that raising kids is not like a quick dish. It's more like a stew. So you put a little too much salt in there, you can compensate by adding a little bit of more tomato sauce or something, you know, that that it's you're not going to ruin the dish with one mistake. Like mm. you can adjust things as you go along. That spoke to me as okay, phew. <laughs> yeah. I know because I think more so than when we were growing up, I think, you know, you and I and just our generation had this sense of sort of like, oh God, what, what are we saying now that's going to be at least eight therapy sessions later? We could screw them up with what we're doing here. I loved both the her tales of parenting i can't even imagine what that would be like to have kids in the white house and then her own reflections on how she was raised i thought well her parents are just remarkable people i mean right. 
I know she, her mother would say, well, no, we're not. But I don't know, to me, they're remarkable people. The other passage I loved was she told this story of a friend of hers. Well, I guess his wife told her that every day, and her husband was like successful mayor and things like that, and, you know, had a very successful family and everything. And that every day in the morning, he gets up and when he looks at himself, he says, hey, buddy. <laughs> and I, I loved that. I actually told both my husband and my son about that. That, And again, she talks about it, that, you know, when she gets up and looks in the mirror and I think all of us, particularly women, do this. We immediately focus on all the flaws that we see, you know, like, what, how did my skin get so dry and wrinkled, like, overnight? And I put moisturizer on. <laughs> Where did those bags come from? Yeah. And those hairs. Losing hairs in one area and then getting them in others, you know. What's Ooh, we, we, yeah, which uh, another great book, the Nora Ephron. I hate oh, yes. my neck. Like that, that, oh, so many good parts in there. But I love the idea of greeting yourself with kindness. And she talks about the home being a place where I think her mother, she came home and it was complaining about a math teacher that she didn't like. And her mother said, well, you don't have to like the math teacher. The math teacher doesn't have to like you. You just need to, you need to get that math in your head, but you can come home and people will like you at home. And I, I love that idea of first, you need to be kinder to yourself. And that home is a place that the power of when you greet someone with genuine excitement that you're glad to see them versus, oh, hey, you again. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do. And I think her identifying kind of simple things that we could all be more mindful of to create more kindness and good feeling, I think, uh, was very powerful, was a very powerful part of the book. Yeah, I agree. So we highly recommend this. Well, we'd like to thank Michelle Obama. Yes. For and writing this book that we yes. could talk about on our podcast. We highly recommend it full of lots of good ideas about parenting, how to be kinder to yourself, how to get big things done by starting small things. Just really a wonderful and very inspiring book, just like her. She's wonderful and inspiring too. And if she ever wants to be on our podcast, then just let us know. We would have her. Yeah. yeah we, we, would, we, we would invite her to come and not just invite her book yeah right and since we're doing it remotely we don't have to exercise <laughs> that's true we could get out of the whole exercise thing we're not yeah. doing a push-up contest with michelle Obama. yeah she would definitely win that and we could probably <laughs> sneak wine yep put it in our coffee cups and then in our that. coffee cups yeah coffee but decaf decaf cup <laughs> well thanks so much for listening and you can find more on our show notes at bootyandbossy.com and we will see you next time for episode 10 so, so whatever you do you do don't, don't knit, knit like, like my, my sister, sister. Ooh.